Cactus Campus uh, on the uh, just a little bit west of here, and then our chapel and our venue, and those watching online, uh, join us for our time in the Word. And uh, before we uh, dive in, I want to just uh, share a few words about um, my mom's passing. Uh, as some of you know, many of you know, uh, my mom uh, died over the Christmas holidays, and uh, it was a, a real special moment, if you will, for me, uh, because I got to be there. I was, uh, as many of you know, I'm very, very close to my parents. I fly in every quarter I have for the last 10 years just to see them and spend a couple of days with them. And uh, last time I was with mom was early December, and she uh, was struggling with some health issues. She's had Parkinson's for years and uh, a couple of small strokes. She was 82, and, uh, and she started to, to deal with some uh, pancreatitis, and, uh, but she was, you know, uh, still doing okay. And um, two weeks after my visit, I was sitting in my easy chair on a Monday on December 18th after preaching here uh, throughout the weekend, and I got a call from Dad, and he said, we're, we're in the emergency room. They live in a small town in Ohio, and he said, uh, the, the doctor thinks you need to come. And so I jumped on a plane, and uh, you know, a long trip into Columbus, and then a rental car two hours north, and I got to their little community and the little community hospital, and I got there at midnight, and at that point, my dad and brother had gone home. Uh, Mom was in the hospital, and um, she was awake. Uh, we come to find out later that she had a pretty nasty sepsis infection that had also gone to her lungs, and so she was struggling to breathe, but she was awake, and uh, she knew what was happening, and we uh, spent about an hour together, really amazing hour, uh, singing. Uh, her favorite hymn, she was a minister's daughter, was Fairest Lord Jesus. Some of you know that hymn. And so we sang it, uh, all four verses. And then we prayed and I read her scripture uh, from Psalm 139, that, that all the days of my life have been ordained for me before one came to pass. You know me so well, Lord. And, and, uh, and, and it was a sweet time with my mom who, who knew the Lord and, uh, and, and uh, was now really, we all knew probably, at that time uh, on death's door. And I won't bore you with the details of the whole next week because the next five days were crazy. She, um, that was really last time we had her awake with us because she uh, had to go on a breathing machine and then they took her off that and she uh, started to shut down uh, in her organs and eventually we had to move her to hospice. And on Saturday night, December 23rd at 9.45, Dad had just gone home. He was with her for like 12 hours by her bedside, and he had just gone home. And uh, I was playing for her some Fernando Ortega hymns and, uh, on my iPhone, and she slipped peacefully into the Lord's presence. And uh, it was at that point that Kim and I had decided I needed to stay for my dad. 60 years of marriage, and uh, he needed a lot of help with uh, the details with the funeral home, and, and I would eventually do mom's graveside service and all of that. And uh, I'd never missed a Christmas away from my church, ever, in uh, 30 years of pastoring. That was really hard. I'd never been away from Kim and the kids in 29 years of marriage and uh, for Christmas. And so it was a tough decision, but both Kim and I agreed that's where I needed to be um, to help my dad through this time. And, and dad was touched by that as well. And uh, so it's it a sad time. Uh, again, I'm very close to my mom. I'll miss her like crazy, but also a precious time as, uh, as I got to help usher her into God's presence. And, you know, I've never been more comforted by the words of 1 Thessalonians 4 when it says that we grieve, but not like the rest of men who have no hope. And, and I can't even imagine 
grieving the loss of my mom or any loved one without the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful that my mom knew the Lord. And when I got back here about a week ago, I um, was deeply touched by the amount of, of text messages and emails and cards. I mean, many of you uh, wrote me cards. Many of you didn't, but that's okay. Many of you, uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Many of you wrote me cards, and, and, I, and I sat down and read every one of them, and they were very meaningful, and I really appreciate uh, that and, and the outpouring of concern. Uh, just to give you a sense of who my mom was, I want to show you a couple of pictures uh, of her. She was a dear lady, very, very small lady. She never weighed more than about 85 pounds, and uh, just a very petite, very classy lady, and, uh, and, and, and yet... 29 years ago, when I was uh, just starting out in ministry, I was interning at a large church in Chicago. Kim and I had been married two years. We just had our first child. Mom and dad came to Chicago, and, and we took this picture of uh, me and my mom. And, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, she looks so young, you haven't changed at all, Jamie. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and this is baby Hannah at that time, my uh, oldest daughter. And you know, that, that was a lot of the view of my mom, just very, very, very joyful uh, woman, and she just loved to be hugged, and I hugged her all the time. And, and ironically, as you have that image in mind, uh, a couple of months ago on one of my visits, we took the very last picture with me and my mom, and wouldn't you know, it was this picture. Uh, the very last picture at a park uh, a couple of months ago, we got out of the car and I just gave my mom a big hug. You can see how small she is because I'm not very tall. And, uh, and I just hugged her and she actually had this developed and the reason it's grainy is she had this picture sitting on her desk in her office and I now have it on my phone. Uh, to be fair, my first picture on the phone is of Kim and then when you open it up, it's of my mom. So we negotiated that one and... Uh, <laughs> to leave and cleave type of thing. And so, uh, but I, I do appreciate you all praying and, and praying for my dad, especially, you know, he's a, he, he's, he's a bit, uh, it's tough on him, 60 years of marriage. Some of you can relate to that. You've been through this. And uh, so when you think of him, his name is Frank, pray for him. And I, it's good to be back. And, and yet I needed to be uh, there. And I know you all understand that. Um, we're starting a series last week on fear. And that was my call. I, I, there's a lot going on in culture. Is it just me or has anybody noticed that? And uh, between politics and society and all that, it's, it's craziness. And, and there's a lot of fear in the air. And so I thought, let's do a, a series talking about fear. So Kevin led off last week with just fear in general. And now we're going to myopically focus on three different subjects over the next three weeks. We're going to look at fear of failure. I know many of you can't relate to that, but we're going to look at it anyways. And then we're going to look at next week, fear of death, ironically, with what I just went through with my mom. And then in two weeks from now, fear of the future, which is on a lot of people's minds. And as always, we care mostly what this book says. And so we're going to allow God to guide us in this. And so as we do that, and as our other campuses and venues and those watching online are with us, let's bow and pray and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, indeed, we are grateful for your presence, your power, your goodness, your grace, your truth in our lives. And I thank you, God, that all of that comes wrapped up to us in Jesus Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that as we open up your book now and talk about something that every one of us can relate to, this idea of fear, that, God, you might ally some of our fears, even here today, as we look to you and give us the help we need from your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. 
So let me begin this morning by taking a little informal poll. I want you to raise your hand to this one. And, and so please participate with me. How many of you have ever uh, had a relational failure in your life? And before you raise your hand, by relational failure, I mean a breakdown in friendship with a friend, a relative, a spouse, a coworker, a neighbor, anybody in your life in which you've been unable to reconcile over the years. Anybody re failed relationally? Raise your hand. Uh, okay, I guess that. Uh, for those who didn't raise your hand, let's try this one. Anybody ever had a sports failure in your life? You tried your hand at a sport, like say football, basketball, baseball, tiddlywinks, chess. Raise your hand if you've ever failed at a sport. Uh, there's a team out in Cleveland called the Cleveland Browns that would be <laughs> raising their hand right now. They've been trying to do football for decades, and they've not been able to do very well. Uh, for those of you who didn't raise your hand at that, how many of you ever have experienced a job or task failure in your life? You just failed at a job or a task at your work. Hey, I got my hand up. In 1991, in my first church, they asked me to uh, run children's ministry because we needed help in that department. And after about six months, they pulled me into the office, the elders did, and said, we're gonna put you back with adults. And so <laughs> I, I didn't do very well at that. Uh, lastly, maybe some of you will raise your hand to this one. How many of you have ever experienced a financial failure in your life? Gotten in trouble financially and debt maybe, or uh, missed your savings goals or even bankruptcy. Here's what I'm noticing with all the hand raising here and I'm sure at our other venues and campuses, and that's that there's a lot of failure here today. And by the way, that would be pretty typical if not normal. We live in a fallen world. We are imperfect people. And if there's one thing we all know, it's that we're going to fail at times in our lives. But here's the deal. We still don't like it. It's no fun to fail. It's always a difficult thing. I mean, anybody here actually like to fail? I, I highly doubt it. And so the question becomes, how do we make friends if you will, with this thing called failure. I mean, knowing that it's gonna happen at times, how do we respond to it in such a way that it doesn't leave us paralyzed on the one hand, because that's where a lot of people get when they fail, uh, but on the other hand, some people get arrogant and cocky and defensive uh, on this extreme. So how do we avoid the extremes and allow failure to do its work that God wants it to in our lives? Four things I want to share with you today. Four things that I've learned about failure over the years from God's word as well as from experience that I believe will help us deal effectively with it. And the first thing I'm gonna warn you right now is gonna shock you or surprise you a little bit because it's not one of the typical things that you hear about failure. It's reserved exclusively for Christians, for followers of Jesus, and you're gonna like this. And here it is. And that is that the first thing we need to do with failure is determine our measuring sticks on what constitutes failure and success. So to personalize it, determine your measuring sticks for both failure and success. Uh, folks, I gotta tell you, this is clearly, hands down, the most important truth in understanding and assessing and dealing with the fear of failure to delineate exactly and precisely what failure is and also what success is. 
Let me explain. Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, you can look it up yourself, defines failure as this. It's to fall short of one's goals, to disappoint the expectations of, of something that you either set for yourself or something that was set for you. So failure is simply not reaching the goals that one sets for themselves or that were set for you by someone else like your boss or society or what have you in whatever situation you might find yourself in. Failure can only be failure. Now think about this. When you're not measuring up to a standard that either you set for yourself or that you allowed to be placed on your life, only when that occurs can we call it failure. And so if you can see failure in this light, you will realize that it clearly becomes something that is only based on your values, your goals, and your priorities. So failure is totally subject to that which we hold important or a goal that we have in life. I mean, think of the converse, gang. If there is no goal, if there is no standard, or if someone does not agree with or buy into the stated goal or standard, then you cannot fail, at least in your own eyes. Failure depends on an agreed-upon set of goals, expectations, and standards. You have to fall short, according to the dictionary definition, of something. And so in this sense, failure is in the eye of the beholder. Failure is determined by what you hold dear and the expectations that you set for your life. Let me give you an example that will help show this. Uh, say in our career-obsessed, material-focused culture, you happen to prioritize different things, things like family, church, spirituality, and leisure much more than our culture does. And so as a result of this, let's say in your particular situation, you pass up a job promotion that's offered to you. And again, you're doing it because there's only so many hours in the week, the demands at work are great, and you decide based on your values and priorities that you're going to pass up this job promotion, but as a result, you live in a smaller house, in a less desirable neighborhood, you have less toys and gadgets, and your retirement is going to follow suit. And again, you do this not because you're lazy or less ambitious, but because your ambitions and values lie elsewhere. Again, with family and church and things like that. So let me ask you, given this scenario and the values you have, now this is a very important question, are you a failure, yes or no? No. I mean, again, some people might not agree with your values, but given those values, you can have confidence in your eyes that you are not a failure. Why? Because you have defined success and failure much differently than the world and culture around you. Do you see how this works? And by the way, sadly, and many Christians know this, the converse is also true. If you were to attain all the job, success, and monetary goals that you could, but then in the process of it, lose your wife, your kids, your emotional health, your relational health, and even your very soul, as Jesus says, are you a success, yes or no? No, of course not. But our culture is filled with people like that who've experienced the good life and the world calls them a success and according to the Bible, 
They might need to own their own failures. And so maybe this will help if you're not convinced. Uh, Jesus was considered a failure by almost everybody around him in the New Testament. Did you know that? He really was. I mean, think about it. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes said this guy's a loser. He's a failure. He doesn't meet our expectations of what a minister and a rabbi should be about. The secular and political leaders saw Jesus as a failure. Pilate, the governor, the guards at the tomb, the guards at the grave, they all said this guy has failed in life. Even his disciples in the last few weeks of his life and before his resurrection saw Jesus as a failure. They said everything that he taught us that we thought would come true based on their expectations did not come true. And yet here's my question for you. With all those people that saw Jesus as a failure, anybody here want to say Jesus was a failure? Of course not. And the only thing that makes Jesus a success, now don't miss this gang, is that he had a different agenda. He had different goals and values, a different purpose and plan than the culture around him. And so they were each defining failure and success differently. And in this case, it was Jesus who was right. It's just that Jesus also felt somewhat alone in the, in the view that he had. Sometimes when it comes to failure, I just want you to see this. It's all a matter of perspective. Some of you feel like failures here today. And the first thing we're going to establish here is that the reason you feel like that is because you're just not measuring up to the culture around you. And I simply ask you, who's right and who's wrong on that one? Because it could be you're smack dab where God wants you. And he's saying success. It's just you got to fight a little bit against going against the grain of the culture around you. This is the Barrett-Jackson week, so it would not be a good sermon without a car illustration. So uh, what car is this? Any of you car guys know? Say, yeah, I love it. Jeff, you got nailed it right here. This is a Corvair. And, and the Corvair was built by, by General Motors back, oh, in about 1959 it was designed. It came out, I think, the first model year in 1960. And the Corvair was initially received very well. It was an economy car. It had an air-cooled six-cylinder engine in the back of the car, which was kind of cool back then. And the early sales of the Corvair were promising. It, it did really well its first few years. People called it a poor man's Porsche. And, and it was really doing well. And then it started to have to compete against the Chevelle and against the Mustang. And sales started to wane a little bit around the mid-60s. And then the death blow came. Ralph Nader, you guys remember him? Wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. And in this book, he cited the Corvair. And he said that the Corvair was unstable. It was prone to rollover accidents. And this just... just gave the Corvair a terrible, terrible reputation. And eventually, the National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration, the NHTSA, did a full-blown investigation into the handling of the Corvair. It was all in the news. And even though they eventually uh, acquitted, if you will, the Corvair, it, it, the damage was already done. In many people's minds, this car was a loser, and many people still today see it that way. 
In fact, this week at the Barrett-Jackson, if somebody buys a nice restored Corvair, people are going to smile at them kind of like they do the Cleveland Browns. You know what I mean? They're going to go, well, that's nice. The guy couldn't afford anything else. He bought a Corvair. That's the way many people see this car. The question is, however, was the Corvair really a failure? I'm not sure when you think about it from a different perspective. There's a magazine out there today that you can find online. It's still there. It's one of my favorite online magazines. You ready for the title? It's called Failure Magazine. It is. It's a magazine online, Failure Magazine. They analyze a lot of historical failures and ask themselves, was it really a failure? Listen to what they say about the Corvair. Was the Corvair a failure, they ask. It's a matter of perspective. General Motors produced nearly 1.8 million Corvairs over 10 model years. The Corvair pioneered such technological advances as turbocharging, true four-wheel independent suspension, and unit body or unibody construction. And its independent suspension was adapted for later model Corvettes. Today, the Corvair still shows, still enjoys a loyal following. The Corvair Society of America has thousands of members and 130 local chapters found everywhere from Idaho to Amsterdam. See, you read it in that light, and you say, that car doesn't sound as much like a loser as I thought. And again, it's simply all a matter of perspective. Sometimes just changing our view a little bit in our lives can make all the difference. It really goes back, gang, at times to how you define failure. And so let's forget about the Corvair right now. Let's go back to your life right now. Because here's the key question I have for you. When it comes to the failures in your life, and we all have them, my first question before we move on to point two here is how do you define failure and success for you? And if you've been listening, the follow-up question is, what do you value and what do you have as a priority in your life that would allow you to have a cogent definition for you on what failure and success are? This is a very, very important question before we move on. Because in about four minutes, I'm going to move on to point two, and we're going to talk about what you can do with actual failures in your life. You're going to find these things helpful, but we got to first define whether or not the things you call failure really are. There's a great passage in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. It's a great book if you've never read it. It's a book that philosophically and theologically goes through a lot of core aspects of life like materialism and work and leisure and and, and asks how important, how valuable are these things in God's economy. And then at the end of the book, it gives a summary statement, kind of like a cliff notes. This is a, a spoiler alert. In Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, it says this. It says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let me repeat that last part. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, what this passage is saying, and it's so profound, gang, is that when you get to the bottom line, when all is said and done, when you cut right through it all and stop playing games, when you stop messing around, here's what matters most, God and his truth. That's really what's at the core of it all. 
that what should determine our values and what should determine our view of success or failure is God and the things that God brings into your life. We are to prioritize him and his values in any assessment of what is success or failure in our lives. And just so we're clear, because you might be asking, what are the things that God values? We talk about those all the time around here, but just let me give you a quick sampling of some of the things that God values that he uses when he looks at your life to determine whether you're a success or failure. Obviously, top on the list is your walk with him. Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Do you read his word? Do you submit your heart to him each moment of each day? A vital, growing, personal walk with God through Jesus Christ is core to God's priorities for you. Uh, second would be relationality. That in a world that tends to see people as objects, people as, as things that you use to get things done, God says that relationship is more important than anything else that you treat others around you as human beings and value relationality. Next is justice. God cares about justice. Do we care about those who have been given a raw deal in this life and are we doing what we can to help bring justice to this world? Obviously, God cares about family. He made the family and that we value our marriages and our children and our extended family. For you business people, this one will help. God cares about integrity and honesty. Now watch this, more so than the money you might make in your business. It doesn't mean he doesn't want you to make money. He does so that you can tithe. But the reality is, is that he also wants you to make money from with integrity and honesty in tow. That's success in his eyes. And then lastly, what would any discussion about what God values be without love? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And this is just a sampling. But what I need you to see is that these are the things that mark success, that mark failure in our lives. Almost all the other things are, are, are second place things, as C.S. Lewis would say, not first place things. And so the very first thing we need to do with failure is clearly define our terms and clearly declare our values so that we can have an intelligent discussion on what constitutes failure and success. That right there is all something you need to hear today. Now, more quickly, because we're running out of time here, let's notice three other very practical and biblical truths on how to deal with failure and the fear that it brings to our lives. And you're gonna find these very helpful. So here's the second thing the Bible says, and that is that we need to allow true failures to shape us, or to personalize it, allow true failures to shape you. And the key here, now don't miss this, is true failures. Because as you've been listening, what I'm talking about here today are failures that are real failures in your life. And so let's talk about that right now. Because here's the deal. Even when we clearly define for ourselves what failure and success are, we're all going to still fail at times. We're going to have values and priorities things that we hold dear or things that we don't even mind putting ourselves under in culture or church or family or wherever, uh, your work, whatever, and we're gonna not measure up to those. And at times we're going to fail. And yet one of the things that so many good people who have failed over the years have found is that if you allow failures to shape you, 
to make you more compassionate, more empathetic, even more rugged and tough, all the while, while you trust in God, then you might just look back on your failure and say, whoa, I never thought something so painful could produce such a good benefit in my life. And it's because of this that I have seen failure for almost 30 years now as more of a signpost in my life more than anything else. What do I mean by that? I find that when I fail, I'm now at a, at a crossroads in my life. Can you relate to this? In other words, I'm either going to take one road in response to my failure that will allow me to feel defeated, dejected, burned out, hopeless, kind of stopped dead in my tracks, because that's what happens to some people when they fail, or I, I can take this road when it comes to my failure, allow God to shape me through it, teach me through it, groom me through it, mold me through it, and, and as a result of that, I become more the man that he wants me to be. It really, failure acts as a signpost like that. And the Bible affirmed this 2,000 years ago. Look at Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. This is profound. It says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Let that sink in a moment. For the sake of argument right now, let's just all agree that failure is a form of suffering. Give me a head nod. Y'all understand that. None of us like it. When we fail, we're in a, in a suffering time, especially if you fail big time. But notice what the Bible goes on to say, that suffering can, for the Christian, produce perseverance. In other words, you learn to live under your suffering. You learn to allow God to be present with you in your suffering. You learn to stay in the ring with God and others, which is what perseverance is, in your suffering. And when you do that, when you don't run or hide, but stay in the ring with God, when you persevere, God says he's going to do something in your, say the word with me, character. He's going to do something in you that's going to make you a better man, a better woman, the person that he really wants you to be. Fascinating. It all goes back to that suffering thing through perseverance. And character, he says, is going to give you hope. And hope will not leave you disappointed. <laughs> That's what failure does in us, gang. It deepens us. It shapes us. So have you failed recently? Maybe you need to see your failure as a signpost, a fork in the road, in which you can go one way or the other, the road to defeat or discouragement or the road to humility and growth. That failure really can be a friend or a foe. Now, Ken, we're fast running out of time, so notice with me a third thing that... God tells us about failure. And this one's going to seem similar to number two here, but it's subtly different. And it gets us even more down to some nitty-gritty things. And that's that we don't just allow failure to shape us, but we learn from our failures. We, we learn from our failures. Uh, the philosopher George Santayana once said this. This is a great statement. You've heard it before. You just didn't know it came from this guy. He says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Found that yet in life? It's really true. I mean, failing is one thing. We've seen already today that every human being is going to fail at some point in their life. But to heap failure on top of failure from not learning from it is the definition of adding insult to injury. And let me encourage you with some key 
uh, these little stories here that I read this week in my study. I, I love these things. You can find all these online. They're true. Uh, Robert Townsend was the guy who masterminded the, 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 uh, the, the, the dramatic turnaround of Avis, the car rental company, back in the 1960s. And Robert Townsend once said this. I love this. He said, two of every three decisions I made were wrong decisions. The guy who turned around Avis. Uh, ben Hogan, the legendary golfer, said that in 18 holes, he usually hit only two or three balls exactly as he planned. But he learned from every stroke. And this is my favorite one. Fred Smith, the founder of Federal Express, he, he got a C on a graduate business school paper in which he described the concept for Federal Express. <laughs> Don't you love that? I, I'd hate to be that professor because I think it was a professor that failed at that one. And then how about 3M? 3M was founded in 1904. They went two years without a sale. And then in 1904, they decided to try their hand at sandpaper. Two years later, they were averaging $2,500 a month in sandpaper sales, and their expenses were $9,000 a month. Not very good. William McKnight in 1906 was an assistant bookkeeper, and in 1907, they promoted him to a general manager. Eventually, he became a vice president, eventually for 20 years, the president of 3M, eventually the chairman of the board, and he died in 1978 with a net worth of $500 million. He learned from his mistakes. And you see, that's the, one of the things you hear from just about every person who's ever failed is that if you can learn to learn from your failures, you're gonna find success. My favorite one of all, I say for the last, Brett Favre, again, this is football season right now, uh, the famous quarterback, he holds the NFL record for the most pass completions of anyone ever, 6,300. But did you also know he also holds the NFL record for the most interceptions of any quarterback at 336? And that should teach us something, shouldn't it? I mean, nothing venture, nothing gained. But if you're going to venture something, you're also going to fail. And yet if you allow those failures to stop you dead in your tracks, to create fear, that's why we call this fear of failure, you're never going to move on. But one of the ways you move on is to say, okay, I failed. I'm going to learn from this so that I don't do it again. And I know some of you are thinking right now, you're thinking, well, Jamie, what, have you been watching Dr. Phil? Like, this is really good psychology, but is this really in the Bible? What's the answer to that? Yes, it's all over the place. And let me wrap up here with one of the most profound stories in the Bible that teaches us this. It's a story that many of you know, but you've never seen it from this angle before. It's a story of Peter when he denied Jesus during the crucifixion, his arrest and trial and crucifixion, and then was reinstated by Jesus after his resurrection. As many of us know, Jesus told Peter at one point in his life, Peter is one of Jesus' closest followers, that uh, you know, before all this is over, you're gonna deny me three times. And Peter, so impetuous, said, no way, I will never, ever deny you. Which was like his first mistake, right? Like if the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, told you something about your life, don't you think he'd know better than you? 
And, and so Peter was so impetuous, he said, I'll never deny you, but we all know this story. Fast forward, Jesus is arrested, he's on trial, all the disciples are hiding out, Peter's at this fire, uh, little bonfire thing, and, 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 and this woman says, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And what did Peter say in a moment of fear? Nope, never knew the guy. And it happened two more times. So Peter is feeling shame. He's feeling objective failure because he did fail spiritually. He denied ever knowing Jesus. And he's filled with remorse. And look at what Jesus does in a powerful moment after his resurrection. It says in John 21, 14 through 17, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Simon said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, this is the restoration of Peter. And the question I have for you right now is, why did Jesus three times using different words repeat this command, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, uh, feed my lambs? Why did Jesus say that three times? And, and, and the answer is powerful because basically what Jesus is saying to Peter, now don't miss this, is that you failed me by denying me. You failed me by not staying in the ring with me. And one of the things that you can now do to restore your life, watch this, is to never get out of the ring again with my sheep, but to feed them, to love them, no matter how stupid they get, no matter how belligerent they are, no matter how much they might hurt you and let you down, you feed them, you take care of them, you stay in the ring with them, you never show unfaithfulness again, Peter. And when you see it through that light, you realize that this restoration, this reinstatement is profound and powerful and gritty and tough as well filled with tremendous grace. In a very real sense, Jesus is saying to Peter, learn from what you have done. And now in the power of the Spirit that's going to be given to you on the day of Pentecost, be a different man from this point forward. And sure enough, when you read the book of Acts and you read Peter's, both of his epistles, you realize we got a different man on our hands. He's a man, not to put it too pointedly, who has learned from his failures. And then we have about a minute left. <laughs> And so here, very quickly, is the fourth thing. We define failure and success for our lives. We allow true failure to shape us. We learn from them. And then lastly, but this one I just want you to chew on this week because this is where some of you are. You need to apply perseverance to your failures. And you know, there's an old saying that many of us know, and it's one that we hear all the time. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. The only problem with this is that some of us have adopted W.C. Fields' take on this saying. W.C. Fields once said, if at first you don't succeed, try again, then quit. There's no point in making a fool of yourself. <laughs> and it is kind of funny, and I can you know, almost picture and hear that chubby guy saying that, but the reality is, is that that's a pathetic way to live. That's a defeatist way to live. 
Uh, the Bible is replete with statements, commands even, that you and I are not like that. But we are the type of people who persevere even through our failures because we know that though there's weeping in the night, there is joy in the morning. You know, churches fail just like people do. And many of the churches in the New Testament, <laughs> I, I don't mean to pop some of your bubble because you might not have known this, but many of the letters in the New Testament were written to churches that had experienced failure. Corinth, Ephesus with their disunity, even Thessalonica. And at one point, um, Thessalonica received this second letter from Paul. He was encouraging them because of some of their failure turned to success. But notice why that happened. He said, therefore, among God's churches, we now boast about you and your, say this word with me, perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So again, you and I cannot avoid failure, persecutions, trials. We're just too fallen. God gets that. But he says, one of the things you need to do is don't get out of the ring with me. Stay in the ring, persevere. A better day is coming as you look to and trust in me. I like how Churchill said it years ago. He said, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. I like that. And that's what Churchill did during World War II, and he won the war. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians win the war in their lives, whether it's a failed marriage, whether it's a failed job, whether it's a failed relationship, a failed moral life, a failed financial life. I've seen people overcome such incredibly bad odds when it comes to their lives. I get a front row seat into these things almost every week. And I can tell you many times, it goes back to perseverance. Perseverance needs to be applied. So in wrapping up here, we started off today by noting that we have an awful lot of failure in this room here and at Cactus, at Venue, at Chapel, and those watching online. It's common in a fallen world. But the reason that we're starting off 2018 with this word on fear is that I don't want fear to grip you this year. When it comes to failure, when it comes to death, when it comes to the future, we're better than that. So let's have our definitions in line with God's word so that we can truly name failure when we experience it. And let's learn from our failures and let's even allow them to shape us into the godly men and women he wants us to be. And let's stay in the ring no matter what with God. And let's see what he does, even with our failures. There's no room for fear here. Why? Because John said it best in his epistle, perfect love casts out all fear. And you are loved perfectly by God and somewhat perfectly by us. So why don't you bow right now and let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible grace to us. And God, we would love perfectly around here if we were perfect people, but we're not. And so we know that you are. And so God, from that love that we get from you, we want fear to dissipate. And Lord, many of us need to be released from this obsessive fear of failure that we have in our lives. Would you pry our hands from the things that we value that at the end of the day, you don't value at least near as much. God, you don't value our worldly successes like we do, and therein lies so much of the problem, God. You value things like our family, our relationships, our spirituality, our churches, our character and integrity. 
Those are the things that you're going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, when our bodies stop working and we're in your presence. And so, God, I pray that as we continue to think on those things and really and analyze failure from that perspective, God, that your Holy Spirit would truly do a work in our hearts. And God, then may we learn from our failures. May they shape us. And may we be of those who are not, do not shrink back and are destroyed, but those who persevere even to the very end. And I pray these things only and always in the matchless name of Jesus. And the church says together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.